You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. What we advise is just a little trick, which we call fact feeling, which is you know, when you need to give feedback, be it you know positive or potentially negative, it's always helpful to start with the fact, what you saw or heard, you know, what was the action or behavior that somebody did, and then follow with the feeling. So you know how that affected you or how you, what was your subjective interpretation about that? A lot of people just launch in with feeling, which is, I feel like、mm. you are too direct, or I feel like you're not punctual, or some really subjective phrase of which there isn't kind of some past action to anchor on. And the whole point of feedback is, you know, improvement or improving an actionable behavior. And if there's no actionable behavior to reference, then you just get really unhelpful circular conversations at work or at home. If I'm honest. I'm your host Naomi Hiley, and on the show today, I sit down with Julian Cook, who is the CEO and founder of How Am I Going. This was an episode very much about HR technology and some philosophies that are out there around feedback, and specifically providing helpful feedback that positively contributes to workplace culture. I came across Julian's company on Twitter and really loved what he was building. This episode is for people who struggle with giving feedback because they may feel that it's too uncomfortable, awkward even, and want simple ways to give feedback that leaves everyone fulfilled. Julian also shared some of the important investments that he made into himself, which gave him the confidence to start a company and really tune into his why. Ultimately, this conversation is about how to create environments for people to thrive. Enjoy the episode. All right, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Power of Why. My name is Naomi Hailey, and today I am joined by Julian Cook. Julian, how are you doing today? I'm great. Good to be speaking to you, Naomi. Thanks for being here. I will provide a little bit of a an intro on Julian's story, how we got connected, and then. We will dive right in. So Julian grew up in a small town in outback Australia, which, from my understanding, is like a remote area、um, in Australia. And today, am I correct in saying that? Or yeah, there are kind of different definitions of outback. This is a a pretty small town, you know, under under ten thousand people, and you didn't have to drive very far to see the red dirt roads that you might. Expect we're not talking the middle of Australia, like Ayers Rock, but it was it was pretty remote.、Mm-hmm. And so today, Julian is the CEO of a London-based technology company called How Am I Going, and they are on a mission to prevent one million people from having painful performance review processes. And Julian and his team have developed an online platform that helps employees get better feedback and more often. How My Going was voted in the UK's top 100 startups, and in 2019 was also listed as a finalist in the top 10 HR technology solution providers in Europe. And prior to starting How My Going, Julian spent about seven years working in mergers and acquisitions at Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, and he also served as a fundraising committee member for the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute. Julian is passionate about his friends, feedback, food, wine, and science. I know we're going to hear a lot more about that. And so, yeah, again, thank you so much for being here, taking some time out of your busy schedule to to speak with me. So, 
No, thank you for doing this and having a go. Yeah, absolutely. So can you provide us a little bit more context on your origin story, sort of how you grew up, where you grew up as well? Yeah, so I spent uh, the first 18 years of my life in that town in Oz that we were talking about. I went to high school there and then moved to Sydney to go to university and uh, did science, majoring in pure maths and statistics. So that's where the love of science and that nerdy part of me comes from. Yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting about your story, and I was trying to figure out, and because you produce a lot of content online, I'll have several links to articles that Julian has written. And I was quite fascinated by, you know, with a background in maths and statistics, and then working in, in finance for a number of years, how you then went on to start your HR technology company. And I found this one story where it's my hypothesis around what maybe sparked that fire for you it was you know you went on a backpacking trip across south america and then you accepted a role um, at goldman sachs and then the following year you were sent on like leadership training in, in new york city and you heard someone speak her name is laura liswood and she was kind of sharing a little bit about feedback and how people how it's so difficult when you don't have an understanding of those cultural nuances. And so you wrote down, you know, you returned to Sydney on a mission to improve at feedback. And so that was my guess at what it was. But if you can talk a little bit about what that decision-making process was and how you got started with How Am I Going? Yeah, I, I was always pretty keen to do the best I could in everything I did. I was always keen to give 100% and, and try and always be a bit better you know, borderline a little bit too competitive, maybe in some areas. <laughs> uh, and that was at school and at sport. And so, you know, when I found myself working in finance after university, I was pretty keen to do a good job. And uh, from all accounts, I was doing a good job. And I just, you know, was on this path to continuous, wanting to improve continually and do better and, and be better. Uh, but then you kind of, found myself in a bit of a vacuum of mm -hmm. feedback. And it was this, you know, once per year performance review. And I'm sure this isn't a unique story to me. In fact, I know it's not a unique story to me because we've interviewed <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands of people at How Am I Going? But for me, it was this question of, um, hang on, why are, we, why are we, you know, taking one, two hours to review my whole years of work? Why couldn't this happen more frequently? You know, when I have the opportunity to then make adjustments if I'm off course um, and to learn different things. And so I started at a small business in Australia called Gresham, which is great, very kind of family culture, uh, family mm -hmm. feel to it, um, small company culture, and then went to Goldman Sachs, which is the opposite end of the spectrum. And, uh, and they, they did things very differently, you know. And, and yes, uh, I remember sitting in the auditorium in New York listening to Laura speak and there's just so many things that it hit home about all these subconscious cultural biases we have in the words we use, uh, not just gender, but race, um, mm -hmm. religious affliction, if you're short or tall, all these little things are just drilled into us from childhood, from Disney yeah. movies and the likes, and where we grew up, and how that just plays into so many things and plays into this fight or flight response that we get when we're faced with a tough conversation at work. Uh, we still think that's kind of like running into a saber-toothed tiger from an evolutionary perspective. And so that was just right. fascinating for me as a problem 
that I couldn't see anyone else had solved yet. Mm -hmm. And so was it something you always realized or was it the way that she articulated it in almost like a business setting that maybe flipped the switch for you? I, I think it was a, a combination of both. I hadn't really received that type of, I guess, training or coaching before. And also she just articulated it really well. And she had written a book about it, which right. was a really easy to read book, which I took away and digested as well. And it was just so glaringly obvious that of course these things are important factors at play, but I just couldn't see, you know, people making an effort or, or trying to deal with them or adjust for them. Mm -hmm. You briefly described, you know, the more stark differences between being at a smaller firm and then also what that looked like at being like at a multinational company. Um, would you say that being in more of that um, close-knit, almost family type of culture, that there were processes in place when it came to feedback culture and just the way that we approach performance management in general? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, what we find and what I found was that when you have a, a smaller business and you have that family feel, there's often often fewer processes in place when it comes to performance management and, and feedback. Because the thinking is that, well, you know, we know each other, we're comfortable with each other, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty clued on and we're able to give and receive feedback on that whole basis. The reality, though, that we find is that it doesn't happen. And often because you know people better, there's less incentive to have the tough conversations because you don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. And in a smaller business, people are often a lot more critical and you're more leveraged around certain people. So there's less of a desire to rock the boat. And then in the bigger businesses like, like Goldman's, you have much more formal processes, but that's often compounded sometimes by you not knowing people as well and perhaps not being so close to them. So you've kind of got two different ends of the, the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, they both come with their own unique challenges, right? And so for you, can you explain we haven't even described what How Am I Going is. I mean, I gave a brief introduction, but can you talk a little bit about the company and the software that you've created and, and what that's been like over the past three years, right? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been almost three years since we launched it. And it's, you know, I describe it as a, a beautiful feedback platform because it really is beautiful. It's designed like nothing else. And it helps people, leaders and employees um, you know, enhance their feedback culture and their feedback processes so that people can do better work and be more motivated and more engaged and stay longer. And so for you, you know, you came out with an ebook. you described 10 fatal things around feedback culture and you gave a lot of details. It's, I think about 60, 60 plus pages. And one of the things that you talked in there was about how people are not necessarily trained to give feedback. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those, like what does it mean to be trained in giving feedback to other people, whether it's specifically in the context of colleagues, you know, and the people that you work with? Yeah, and I have to give the disclaimer that I am not a trained, you know, psychologist or psychiatrist. I've obviously done science at uni, but I have uh, kind of leached off psychologists and psychiatrists in this regard. And, and one particular mentor of mine who has helped a lot is a guy called Professor 
Samuel Colbert, who's at the UCLA um, Anderson School of Management. He's, he's written some great books, uh, one of them called Get Rid of the Performance Review. So of course we clicked. Um, <laughs> but, but one of the big things um, there, and we've tried to dispel and, and condense the kind of advice from a, a, a psychologist perspective down to something just really easily, easily memorable and, and actionable for people. And so what we advise is just a little trick, which we call fact feeling, which is you know, when you need to give feedback, be it you know, positive or potentially negative, it's always helpful to start with the fact, what you saw or heard, you know, what was the action or behavior that somebody did, and then follow with the feeling. So you know, how that affected you or how you, what was your subjective interpretation about that? A lot of people just launch in with, feeling which is I feel like mm. you are too direct or I feel like you're not punctual or some really subjective phrase of which there isn't kind of some past action to anchor on and the whole point of feedback is is um, you know improvement or improving an actual behavior and if there's no actual behavior to reference then you just get really unhelpful circular conversations at work or at home if I'm honest yeah and, you know, I think even reflecting on some of my past work experiences and even like beyond work, let's say just in school, when you in business school, where you have all of these group assignments that you need to do group projects. And often it's if you don't have maybe a system or a framework for how to communicate with people and in a way that is actually helpful, you know, and could make the whole team better at the end of the day, then it makes for some really challenging relationships and especially when you need to get work done and we need to do this in you know a timely fashion i think oftentimes we're left to just not communicate the way that we feel right and so with the company what are some i mean you have guiding principles and beliefs and that's what i really appreciate about the platform is that you're really clear on where you stand on a lot of maybe polarizing um, opinions or and so can you talk a little bit about what those are? For example, your feedback on your platform is completely anonymous. So maybe we can start there. Yes, we, we uh, yes. So feedback that you receive on our platform is anonymous, but there's also another realm to that, which is often overlooked, which is that it's solicited. Hmm. So when we say that feedback is anonymous, you, you often puts people in two camps. On one camp, people say, well, that's going to create a, a faceless culture where people are not earning their comments. And on the other camp, you have people say, well, this is great because we know not everyone says what's really on their mind because of fear of how it will make them look or retribution. So we certainly don't believe that, you know, unsolicited feedback. Well, it's good to give unsolicited feedback if you have a trusting and respectful relationship with someone and if it's done at the right time, in the right way, uh, online, our platform we don't think is the right time to give unsolicited or the right place to give unsolicited feedback we think it's a face-to-face -face thing but when you genuinely want to know where you stand or where you how you want to get better in something or how you did on a project or a presentation you know we know that feedback is acted on when it comes from the people you want when you want so that's why it's solicited but we let the people respond with their names removed from the comments and the names removed from any scales or anything and this just gives them the most kind of psychologically safe environment possible to really be honest. And so that just gives you, you know, better feedback more often as you, 
alluded to in the punchline earlier. Right. And some of those other things are also giving praise as well in public. And, you know, you are very clear on the website, at least in describing what this can look like practically. You know, I think with a lot of solutions, it's like very opaque and it's like, okay, but what does that mean for, for my organization and, and my team? And so the one thing that I noticed about praise is often people are not re really recognized for the work that they do. And a lot of these frameworks that you've provided or even suggestions are contributing to an overall feeling of belonging within an organization. Can you talk a little bit about what that process has been like in digging through the research and, and, and compiling like this book, for example? Mm. Hey there, thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. Yeah, I started cheekily by answering with a question, which was, when was the last time that, that you felt overthanked? <laughs> That's so funny. Um, and I have like a tangible example for you. And it's not necessarily from a work environment, but it was like with my friendships. And that only came with having a conversation with my friends around like, what do you need in a friendship? And you know, how can I be a better friend? And so, yeah, that would be my answer to that question. <laughs> Sounds like a very good conversation. Probably more of us could have. <laughs> so yeah, praise is a, is a funny thing. We've done some internal surveys. Uh, when I say internal, I mean we've conducted these surveys of um, just broader population and we can reference other surveys as well. It's still one of the most unmet needs, um, or if potentially the most unmet need for employees is feeling recognised for their work. Yeah. Um, it's just such a simple thing, but we forget to do it and it's such a, a powerful uh, motivator. Uh, so I think we've seen over the last four or five years that there has been extra focus on that. And there are some really great uh, pieces of software that are really helping with this. We take a slightly different stance, though, uh, than, than the, the platforms that give kind of rewards and money and vouchers and that sort of thing. Uh, when we did our interviews and our research, uh, we found it was less about the, the financial rewards and it was more around people do want to do a good job people do want to be recognized they want to know what it was that was good about what they did so we don't have financial rewards within our platform but every piece of praise you give is public to everyone else in the business and it's split into two parts again fact versus feeling so what was the action like what did you do or what did someone in your team do firstly and you know why was that great and i think that's important to set that example for junior employees as well because it can be nice to receive an email or something that just says thanks or thanks for the hard work or thanks for staying late. But kind of what, <laughs> what behavior are you reinforcing there? Um, right. are, you, are you, you know, you're saying that to get recognized in the business, you need to work hard and stay late. Or is it the mm -hmm. fact that you, you know, went through and, you know, spell checked each page and picked up, you know, this issue on this page or found something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's such a powerful nuance 
of what what is it that you want to re- re- reinforce within your company. And I think that also goes back to understanding like what your organization stands for and from a values perspective. I'd love to switch gears slightly here. You know, you publicly shared a little bit around what some things that you've instated like within your within how am I going around like no meetings email or slack from 9am to midday like you have quiet times you have reading mornings every month learning days and so can you talk a little bit about how you came up with these you wrote down four things there could be more I have no idea Um, but how you came up with these and what that process was like did you you know come up with them as a team Um, what did what did that look like for you Mm, yeah. So I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, I had experienced quite grueling working conditions in mergers and acquisitions, which was you know, working till past past midnight most nights and working most weekends. You get a lot of work done in a short period of time, but it doesn't last. It just burns right. you out. And you know, the the less sleep you have, the less creative you are and the less energy you bring and uh, funnily enough I actually heard this phrase from from someone at Goldman Sachs in another leadership conference it was something along the lines of it's not about the hours you do at work it's about the energy you bring to the hours you do something mm-hmm. like that and it, it made me realize that okay so if I'm going to have a startup I don't want people to go through what I went through I really don't believe those are the conditions for people to do their best work um, mm-hmm. and even if someone you know can uh, survive in that environment. So many other things have to fall away, you know, family, social responsibilities, that it becomes a bit of a, a battle of wills and um, work is very rarely going to win out in that. So we kind of came with that challenge of like, okay, we don't want people to to work long hours into the night or weekends. So how do we make sure that you know, the days are really productive and fulfilling and rewarding? How do we make sure that people can, to some extent, you know, switch off and still have a social life and family life? Uh, I would say like the, the, the two books that had an impact were Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek and Deep Work by Cal Newport. Yeah. And when you read, uh, the first time I read um, The Genesis for Quiet Time was, yeah, was largely Deep Work by Cal Newport. And I only read about a third of the book and I was like, oh my God, this is just so... <laughs> Obvious. I don't even need to read any more of it. Uh, I have I have eventually, but it was it was funny. It's like there are just, you know, if you're a knowledge worker, you need to use yeah. internet. Your value to the world is extracting value from information. You're not in a mm-hmm. production line. You're not using your hands. You're using your brain. The downside of that is if you are on the internet, you've got so much crap flying at you from the moment you wake up, you know, the time to screen is measured in seconds these days. People wake up and the first thing they do is look at their phone and they've just <laughs> forced their brain to be on the defense, to be yeah. in reactive mode. When you actually look at when, you know, and there's been some studies done around context switching about if you are moving between two tasks, it just take, takes you longer to do each task. You do right. a worse job at each task. And also um, you perform worse in subsequent tasks. You have less willpower. And so we experimented with it a little bit. Uh, where we settled on is that, yes, now between 9am and midday, UK time, on my morning as well in, in New Zealand now, it's no internal calls or meetings or Slack messages. So it's you get up and you get what you need to get done. 
if something's really urgent, if you really cannot proceed with what you're doing without talking to someone, pick up the phone, call them. <laughs> um, but even, equally, we'll say, look, if you're really stuck, if it's a block, maybe go for a run, go to the gym. I don't know, to encourage people to get through that dip and to take a bit of time to themselves to think rather than just being dragged into whatever online communication tool or, or meeting mm-hmm. makes the loudest sound or has the most visible button on the computer. That's so interesting. And so were a lot of these practices things, for example, with quiet time, not checking your phone or your emails before a certain time of the day, I'm curious to know for you on a personal level, is that something that you've tried out before and thought, okay, this actually works and it's contributing to me being better at work as well. I was wondering like what the process was of getting these three, these four things on the table for your team. Yeah. The, the quiet time was, I was thinking back to if I had a really important piece of work in the past, and there was a clear deadline. I needed to get it done. I needed to do some good work. I would switch my phone on airplane mode. Mm-hmm. I would close my email and I would go like myself in a room in the office or work at my desk and I'd get it done. I wouldn't answer the phone. And so then it was a question of, well, why don't I do that more often? Um, mm-hmm. Why do I get beholden to all the distractions other times of the day? And equally at school or university, you know, when you yeah. need to cram, you cram and you, you don't get distracted. So anecdotally, I was a believer in it. And now that I'd seen some studies about it, the scientist in me was doubly convinced. The team initially, I was quite military-like in the, the, the rollout of it initially. Um, I started introducing fines if people broke quiet time. We had a, like a fine jar or a tip jar, and that went to a drinks, drinks kitty when we met up at one of our off-sites that helped a lot. It, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, practice. Even I would break it too, because yeah. it's so instinctive. You have something in your head and you go, oh, I need to tell this person about this. Right. Then you stop and like, well, actually me telling them might give the impression that uh, they think I think they should act on it. And then they'll be thrown off. Even if you don't tag them, or even if you say, no need to act on this now, it's still not really necessary to, to put that there. It's being a little bit selfish by getting it off your plate you're putting it on their plate and it's something that floods their minds when they're in a deep work state. So that's, that's quiet time. And the other things we do as well, uh, we've always been largely remote. And so to get around that once every quarter, pre COVID, we meet up for a week, usually in Spain and, and have an offsite. So we you know, go through strategy for the quarter and the quarter ahead. Uh, and, you know, and, and just go out for dinners and get to know each other a bit more as well. Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of like 50% work and the other 50% are personal development stuff. We have mindfulness coaches come in and you know, presentation skills, uh, improv, we've done art class and things like that. So it's, um, I really like it because I think in that week you just get to know people so much better and you form really good memories compared to very transient interactions you might have if you're in the same office when you know you can always right. spend time with someone you never do <laughs> but when you're all right. together for a week yeah it's it's a really great environment so we do that and then yeah once a month we'll have a mindfulness morning where we'll take a couple of hours and we'll just talk through things talk through what we're going through in the environment and you know how we're dealing with ourselves and everything else and a morning where we'll have a reading morning as well where we'll pick a book 
and we'll all kind of read a chapter and then we'll you know, discuss it, have mm-hmm. a break, do that a few times. It's usually a, a business book. It's usually something that impacts a lot of us. Um, but it's just a really good way to, I think, reinforce the culture and to remind people that every job is a, is a stepping stone. The important thing is to be working on yourself and improving yourself. Yeah. Um, and we kind of like to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. There's this level, I think, of trust that you're building um, in doing these types of activities with your with your employees, with your teams. And, you know, in one of your articles, you wrote down that, like, it's about creating an environment of vulnerability. And I think it closely relates to being able to even give feedback in a way that makes sense of what you described in your ebook. And so this level of building relationships beyond the surface, right, with the people that you work with, does definitely bleed into performance and just the way that you show up as well. So that sounds like a lot of fun. How big is your team? Uh, We're not quite 10 people. Okay, great. That's awesome. It's obviously a little bit easier uh, when there are less than 10 of you. But uh, a lot of these things you can do with a bigger business, but I think you just really have to have someone at the top that refuses to give in and and keeps trying to implement these things, I guess, for the greater good, really. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know for, I think with a a lot of different things, this is not just with the topic of the conversation we're having, but often companies or, or people will say, I don't know where to start, so I'm just not going to start at all. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about what, what would you say to folks who are in that boat, who maybe understand the value and say, okay, this is great, but maybe not for us. Um, where would you say is like the, and it's going to be different for different companies, but w- what's a good starting point, Julian? And this is people saying, I'm not sure where to start with performance management or I'm not sure where to start with culture or performance management specifically yeah uh it's really funny there's this stigma around 360 feedback that it's this big corporate convoluted chaotic thing that you know you only do if if you've got thousands of employees and and this kind of ancient stack ranking bell curving mechanism but it's it's so much um simpler than that you know if you work in a team which most people do then (laughs) you need to work as a team and that means knowing you know where you stand with the people around you and and what you're doing that's helping them or what you're doing that's maybe blocking them so one of the things we try to get people to do is just say don't overthink it you have people in your team you've got whatever you know, more than 10 people in your team. So you've got teams that are working together. You need those teams to be functioning. We all come to work in life with very different worldviews and vocabularies and working styles. So it's not going to be perfect. But suffice to say, you want people to be working better together and doing as best as a job that they can. So, you know, why not every three months just have a very short feedback process that lasts a couple of weeks where everybody in the team picks just say three other people they've worked with. And those three other people answer the questions, what have I done recently that really helped you or that you liked? What have I done that maybe um, didn't help as much or that maybe blocked you or that I, that, that I could do better? 
And then just a third kind of question around any other comments or advice or tips that you, you haven't had the time or, or courage to say. And it's really quick, especially when you just limit the responses to a few lines. We usually limit it to a tweet length so mm-hmm. that you don't get the, you know, pardon my French, the shit sandwich pieces of feedback, which are a paragraph long and really convoluted and confusing about what the takeaway is. Right. It's, it's really easy. And so we find that uh, there's a hesitance or people will say, oh, we don't need this until we're much bigger. But often when you're much bigger, it's too late or too hard. So we're trying to encourage people to, to be a little bit more proactive with this and, and let go of the fear of it needing to do everything and needing to get it perfect. Just start, just start with some team feedback processes every few months. There's very little downside in it. Right. Right. No, there is definitely little downside. And especially when you, I don't know if contain is the right word, but if you, you know, do it in a way that is pretty simple, it only takes a couple of minutes, but I was just reflecting on how we could do it at our workplace because we've never done anything like this before. <laughs> I, I definitely 100% see the value in it. And as we kind of come in and wrap up the episode, I'm wondering for you, like in terms of your career, with everything that you've done, you know, what is the best investment that you've made and, and how did you decide to make it? So it doesn't necessarily need to be a financial investment, but maybe like time spent on, on X or money spent or resources allocated to, to something that really helped you develop in, in your own career. Yeah. Uh, I'd say probably, probably two things. The first one uh, was the investment of all of my savings to, to, to quit a job and go backpack around South America for four months. And, uh, and that was just so liberating and eye-opening and fun. And also I met my now wife there as well, which had an added, added bonus. But, uh, and that was a catalyst for, for so many uh, things that followed, um, you know, including you know, moving to London you know, probably in some way gave me the courage to, to, you know, go full-time with a startup. But I would say more recently in the last two years, the investment I've made into taking the time to do mindfulness meditation and to really go down that rabbit hole, uh, I have a really amazing mentor or coach, I'm not sure what the right word is, kind of a friend uh, now as well, um, who I met through that journey. And it's just a great source of balance and reflection and I guess stability, you know, when seemingly everything else around you is in turmoil, yeah. uh, it just provides a really pleasant North star to mm. keep you there. Yeah, I agree. And especially with, you know, the past year that we couldn't have ever planned understanding what it is that you can control and can't, and, and just taking care of yourself and your mental wellness is, is so important. So I'm glad that that was, that's been a part of your journey. That's, that's amazing. Um, I'm also curious about some, cause you're obviously in the HR technology space, curious with some, what are some industry trends that you're really focused on or interested? Is there anything coming or that's been surfacing over the past couple of years that you have your eye on that you'd like to share? Yeah. Uh, I was actually reading a report from McKinsey a few days ago that uh, the report's from late last year, but uh, they surveyed quite a lot of executives. And their summary was that COVID-19 has 
accelerated technology adoption of not just large businesses, but small and medium businesses by three to four years. Uh, it's kind of something anecdotally that you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it was interesting to see some, some hard data on that. And we're also now witnessing a lot of businesses that were, you might say, tech laggards or just really slow to move into the cloud or to move away from Microsoft Word or Google Docs-based processes. They're now saying, you know what, let's, let's take the time and invest here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's um, so it's, it's kicking off a bit of a trend. Uh, we're also seeing some mergers and acquisitions activity in this space. Workday has announced it's going to acquire Pecon, which isn't really a, a competitor, but they're in the space and they're one of the first ones in the space. So that's, that's really happy for them and that's really exciting. I think it's going to be a fun few years. I mean, it's been very slow to evolve. I kind of had the idea back in 2015 and then, you know, bootstrapped it and fiddled around for a while while I was working um, another job and it didn't really go full time and, and go seriously until 2018. Mm-hmm. But I, I liken it to, you know, you say we don't do formal feedback. We don't do 360 feedback. So now that you say it, it's so easy and why don't we do it? And that's just kind of how it is globally. It's, it's kind of like, you know, in, in the year 2000, the thought of posting a photo of you in the street so that a million people in the world could see it would be like, no, why would I do that? But then Facebook came <laughs> along and, and then all of a sudden you have an avenue to do it and there's social proof because everyone else is doing it. And so now you do it. So um, there isn't yet the kind of Facebook in our space. You know, there isn't kind of that social proof that, Oh yeah, we do you know regular team based feedback every three week, three months. Like, of course we do. Why wouldn't we? It's still oh, yeah. little, the market is still a little bit in that information gathering phase. But mm-hmm. I think over the next five to ten years, and I hope that things move a little bit quicker. I hope so too, <laughs> because this is especially when it comes to people and people programs and just the way that we make decisions around people. It's so crazy, but with every other business challenge that we have. There's always this like rigorous process that we take. Let's collect the data. Let's analyze it. Let's understand like the current state. And for some reason, when it comes to people decisions, even for me, like when it comes to like looking at equity data that's out there and around diversity and inclusion, there isn't much out there. And McKinsey and Lean In were the, was like one of the first organizations that came out and say like, let's build the biggest data set so we know what we're working with. So I'm definitely with you and excited for the next couple of years in this space. So um, do you have any final words, Julian? So, yeah, I would just echo what you just said. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a perfection mindset where companies want to get it right the first time. And so they, they don't do it or they worry about not collecting enough data. But the important thing is just to start and uh, failures are important and mistakes are really important. That's how you learn. So start mm-hmm. small and but be prepared to stop early and reflect and look back and then go from there. You don't need to get it right the first time around. What a powerful way to, to end this conversation. And I wanted to thank you, Julian, for coming on and sharing a little bit more about how am I going and how this journey has been. I absolutely love the work that you are doing and, you know, not just in the space, but also the way in which that you support your employees as they do the work that they do too. So thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I will have all of the links for where you can connect with Julian, whether that's on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and we look forward to you listening to next week's episode. 
Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a review on iTunes with a brief note about your thoughts of the show. We publish new episodes of the podcast every single week. Until then, thank you so much for listening.